This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. For this edition of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three award-winning artists, Susan Tedeschi, Adam Durst, and Kaylee Cuoco. First up is my chat with Susan Tedeschi, a co-founder of the Tedeschi Trucks Band, along with her husband Derek Trucks, and a Grammy-nominated solo artist in her own right. The latest album from the Tedeschi Trucks Band is Signs, which came out in February through Fantasy Records. I had the pleasure of speaking with Susan by phone about a month after Signs came out. Hi, Susan. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Great, thanks. Uh, Where are you calling in from? I'm actually um, at home in Jacksonville for a couple days. I'm curious, as somebody from Boston, how you wound up in Jacksonville in the first place. Oh, my husband. He's from Jacksonville. He was born in St. Augustine and, and grew up in Jacksonville. And his family's all here. Was Signs recorded in Jacksonville? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And I read that, you know, all 12 of you guys were on the record and it was made in Jacksonville. How logistically difficult was it to make that happen? Not too hard. I mean, we've been doing that now for a while. Like the last couple records we've made here. So we have our house and then there's like a path that goes to the, you know, backyard and it goes to a barn. It looks like a barn and that's the, the studio. And so there's like a control room with a big you know, um, 8048, like an old Neve board from the 70s. And then in the next room, there's like a big, huge room where we put the two drummers and the bass player and Derek and my guitar and the keyboards in there. And then I have like a little vocal booth where I'll sing in the vocal booth and my amp will play in the main room. And um, if we need, and so we usually will track all the basics with the core of the band, which are the drums, the bass, keyboards, um, two guitars, and I'll do a scratch vocal, and sometimes they keep the vocal. And then later we'll add the horns and we'll add the, the singers. So there's six people that we add after the fact, after we get the basics. Because, I mean, we could fit us all in there, but then if somebody messed up, you know, and also a lot of the times when we're making a record, we're writing as we go. So we sort of are writing the tunes and finishing the arrangements. So it's just better to have the core do the basics, and then we can add, you know, the horns and the singers after the fact. Uh, did you know outright that you were going to be making a new album, or do you just invite everybody down and you think you're going to start making an album? Oh, no, we know. Actually, a lot of times what we do is we invite folks down and sometimes some of our friends who are songwriters, and we'll write the songs, and that'll be more casual. You know, we'll, we'll hang out and we'll, we'll write tunes, maybe just Derek and Mike and I one-on-one, you know, the three of us. Or maybe, you know, we'll get the drummers down. And in the past, Kofi, who passed away in February. Um, But, you know, that was really the main group that would sit there and and we would work on tunes. And then, you know, when we know we're going to start recording basics, it's because we already have a good handful of songs, like probably six or seven songs. And then we'll just start recording. And we'll do like one a day or two a day, depending on you know, how the pace is going, you know, it just depends. And when we start recording a record, we know we're recording the record. Do you remember which song for Signs was written first? Was written first? Um, 
Probably All the World is Bleeding in Shame. I think, I think Shame was the first. Got it. And for people who are coming to see you on the upcoming dates, I know you're in the midst of a tour that's eventually going to Europe. Uh, how much of the new record are you playing? Are you playing most of it? We play all of the songs except for the ending. We don't play that song because it's just too close to home. You know, it's, it was originally written as a you know, tribute for Colonel Bruce Hampton, who was a close friend of all of ours. And then, you know, with Kofi just passing away, you know, uh, it's just, you know, some of those songs are really, really hard. But, um, but the ending is just one that Derek and, and Falcon just can't really, and myself, you know, it's really hard for the three of us because we're all so close to Colonel. You guys have now been together for so long that your solo careers, plus having this band together, it must be very difficult to choose a set list for each show. Well, our, our solo careers, you know, we kind of put that on hold when we did this band starting in 2010. So just recently we've been adding material from, mostly from Derek's band, you know, um, and, you know, a couple of tunes from my band, but not, not a whole bunch of stuff from my, my solo stuff. You know, and that was just really recently that we just started doing that. I mean, we do some of the covers that I used to do, but I don't really do a lot of my original music with this band, which I would like to do eventually. Um, and, and then I'm always writing, too. So when I do write now, at least that stuff goes into this band. So, you know, for example, like I have one song that I, I wrote solo on this record. But for the most part, I do a lot of the writing now with Derek and Mike. And Mike actually has a few songs on this record that were written before we even started writing for this record. So there were songs that he had already had completed that he was like, hey, you know, what do you think of these? And we're like, oh, my gosh, we love that. We should totally record that. You know, so there were a couple songs that were written before we even attempted to write this this record. So how far ahead (laughs) are things planned for your band? Because, again, it's very interesting that you had two successful solo artists who came together for this, and then a lot of your side people are also extremely successful solo artists. So do you know what you're doing with this band six months in advance? Oh, we know. uh, I mean, we're working on next year now. Like, we're already booked through December, and we're working right now. We're planning out next year, like all the way through next December. So a good amount of time, which is actually good in some ways, but it's really hard in other ways. Um, for example, being parents, you know, a lot of us have kids and they have schedules and they have things going on and sometimes we can't be there for things that we want to be there for, you know, and then other times it works out. But for example, like next year, we're about to look at our schedule and I was like, well, we better be home for our son's graduation. He's graduating high school next year and going to college. So you know, that's the other thing. Like, we have to make time. Like, we just went and started to look at colleges, you know, during our little bit of time off this past week, actually. We just went. He had spring breaks. So we went and started to look at colleges. But, you know, so it's hard to be a parent as well as a musician and tour all the time. And with our schedule this year, it's just been so busy and so emotional. You know, I mean, losing one of our closest bandmates uh, is really, really hard. I mean, he's been playing with Derek for 20 years. I've been friends with him. I mean, he literally met Derek a week or 10 days before he met me, and that's when they started playing together. So, so that, this, has been, this has been a hard one this year. Um, but, you know, we're, we're really close and we're really tight, and we do have a new bass player, and we have a, um, a wonderful uh, piano player, keyboard player, Gabe Dixon from Nashville, who's been playing with us. And he had committed to a year 
um, because he knew that Kofi was healing and, you know, was trying to get better. And now that Kofi has passed away, it's, you know, I don't know exactly what the future holds exactly, but I think, you know, we're going to try to work in some of Gabe's stuff too. I mean, he's a really wonderful solo artist and singer-songwriter and everything too. So, so there's a lot of possibilities that we can go with this band. And, you know, we feel really blessed that we, you know, have the, the group that we have right now touring and, and everybody sounds great doing the new record, you know, and these two, you know, guys have stepped in and have learned all of our old stuff as well as our new stuff. So, you know, we're really lucky that way. Well, one of the things I like most about your career and your band is the fact that you guys are all about the music and it's always been that way. It hasn't been contingent on having hits or videos or viral marketing. Uh, when was it that you kind of realized that you guys were going to be okay as long as you just kept on touring? You know, I think in the early 2000s, because I kind of realized that after, you know, I was up for a big Grammy, what you call a big Grammy, back in the, you know, in 2000. And it was kind of a pivotal moment. You know, I was actually dating Derek, and he was really supportive and like, in my career of, you know, doing what was important for me musically, but he was like, don't worry about, you know, doing all the videos and all that stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know, you can get hits and blah, blah, blah. He's like, but he's like, you know, ultimately, what do you want? He's like, do you want fame? And I'm like, no, (laughs) you know, so neither of us ever really wanted to be famous. You know, we really just want to play music for a living. And so it really has worked out, you know, I mean, fame is totally overrated, <laughs> you know, nobody, well, I mean, everybody's different, you know, but I mean, I like to go to the supermarket and, and peace <laughs> and I like to uh, go to all my kids' baseball games and you know what I mean? Like, I just like being a normal person and doing stuff that everybody can do and some of my friends can't do that, you know, because they're big stars or whatever and I just, I think early on, Derek kind of instilled in me, you know, the music is more important. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, and I, I always thought that, but, and honestly, I just never really wanted to do the video thing because I was always kind of bummed out that, not bummed out, but I, I think kind of sad that people were so involved in the visual of music instead of actually hearing the music, you know. And I was like, wow, when did that change, you know. But it did. There was a, definitely a shift, you know, with things like MTV and VH1. But they were cool. I thought VH1 and MTV, you know, in in the 90s was kind of cool. Um, but it really took a turn when all the record stores went down and everything became digital and, you know, the whole industry changed. And it just it lost a lot of the the beautiful artistry that is in the music, you know, and recording it and, like, who engineered it and where was it done and, you know, what musicians are on it. And, like, a lot of things now, kids don't know any of that because they just get it off of iTunes and they don't doesn't have any real information on it. So I, that's another reason why it's fun to make vinyl, so people can have something to open up and look at and hear the analog and, and hear the real music, because you lose a lot digitally. So the music is really important to us, and it always has been. And we also really perf- love performing live, because, you know, and for me especially, like I always have been more of a live performer than a studio performer, you know. Some people just like to do studio work, but I'd rather play live. I guess in closing, uh, any last words for the kids? For the kids? Which kids? My kids or all kids in general? All the above. Anything that you can offer up, please? Yeah. I mean, honestly, well, for young, inspiring musicians, nowadays, I don't even know what to say because nothing is run the way that it was when I was coming up. 
but the, the advice I do have is, you know, do what you love, and you know, and always just work hard at it. You know, it's not something that you're going to make a billion dollars off of unless you're just lucky. But um, but at the end of the day, you know, just do what you love and and go out there and write songs and get out there and be heard and and you know and, and build up a following and and enjoy what you do. You know, because it is a really beautiful job. You know, I've I've had day jobs. You know, I've I've done. You know, I, I'm I'm done working for re- in retail or you know, working in electronics or being a waitress. You know, I, I did all that stuff. I, I've done it all, and I really appreciate being able to do what I love, which is being a musician and a mom, you know, and I can do both of those things, and I, I'm really, really lucky um, that way. Um, and then for my kids, you know, just the same thing. Just be passionate about whatever you want to do and, and love it and and try to find a way to make a living at it. You know, I, I mean, most most of the time, if you're good at something and you're you're passionate about it, there's a way to make it into a, a career. You know, you can be creative about it. And for those, you know, just in general, I'd say just come on out and see what we're into all the time. You know, we're we're always trying to reinvent ourselves and we're trying to deal with the times and current events, but at the same time, you know, try to bring some hope and some joy to people so they cannot be so stressed out with the way the world's going <laughs> right now. <laughs> Between the environment and politics and all this pressure, you know, life still goes on, and we're lucky to be on this planet, you know, and we're a species, and we have to remember that. we got to work together, not against each other. And that's pretty much the only advice I have. <laughs> Next up is my chat with Adam Duritz. Adam may best be known as the frontman of the Counting Crows, but he's had an excellent track record when it comes to discovering new artists. Adam and Barbara Rappaport are the minds behind the Underwater Sunshine Festival, which returned to the New York City venue Bowery Electric in early April. Adam also co-hosts a podcast under the name Underwater Sunshine, which was also the name of a Counting Crows album. Adam did not shy away from any of my questions, and his sense of wonderment is definitely to be admired. It's always intrigued me about how artist-centric you've been. You know, the record companies that you have, like E Pluribus Unum and Tyrannosaurus, and even, you know, what you did in bringing Alex Chilton back to the forefront of things. Has it always been a conscious decision of yours to work with other artists? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I really like music. I'm a pretty big music fan. And so, you know... I just really like it. I have a lot of friends who make music. I always love that part about it. So, you know, I, I did what I could back then. In, in retrospect, it's just really hard to run a record company, but there was no such thing as, like, social media back then to do it in other ways. I mean, there kind of was in AOL and MySpace, but it, it was pretty difficult. And I loved working with the bands, like, making the records when I was running a record company. It's a lot of failure, you know what I mean? You can put all the effort in the world to try the very, very best, but it's really hard to sell records. It borders on being impossible to find independent distribution that really works, you know, in an effective way, especially when we were working with like actual physical goods. It would be so easy now. You just upload things to Bandcamp and it's done. You know, it's, uh, it's so simple and, and uh, efficient now. But back then it was so impossible. Like the best thing you could hope for was to get a mom and pop record store, the kind of place that would actually talk about a band to take some copies but they can only take two or three so best case scenario they take it up they tell people about it they play it and those copies are gone in a couple days and then it's like now they don't have copies anymore you know what i mean there was no good system it just was really hard for independent bands well did you have 
aspirations originally to be an A&R guy, or you just want to help bands? Well, I mean, I was doing the A&R for our record companies. I mean, I was one, basically. I was doing the A&R. I was helping executive produce records. I was doing a lot of that, you know. Even on bands that weren't on label, like Remy Zero, who I was just working with because we were working together. You know, we are just friends. Uh, I don't know if that was the aspiration. I just, you know, I had friends who were in great bands, and, you know, we wanted to make records together. And I, I felt like they were going through hell on the labels they were on. And it just seemed like we could do it better. And in some ways, we really did. You know, I felt like we saw really cool bands. We enabled them to make the records they wanted to make. We helped out on them. We made... I'm, incredibly proud of the records we made. I'm incredibly ashamed of how few of them we sold, you know, cause in the end you've just failed your friends at that point. You know, nice thing about the festival or the podcast or any of those things is they are never really failing any, but those bands were some of my best friends. And I feel like there's no way to describe it as anything other than a failure on our part, even though a lot of it was really, really good, but we didn't sell records and that made it, you know, in that sense, we failed them just like the majors did. Could it be you You look at it as failure, you know, seeing how many millions of records that you sold with your own band, that when you only sell 20 or 50,000 copies, that rather than saying, wow, it found its audience like a guided by voices type, that it's a failure based on your success? No, I really would base it on the fact that we, weren't, we didn't make a sustainable model for the bands. You know, that it didn't keep their career where it needed to be. That's really the model that I would use. It just didn't promote them to the extent they could keep doing it in that band that's which is all we were really trying to do make careers and lives for them you know and i don't and i don't think any of them succeeded on the level of a guided by voices or or even like a early flaming lips we didn't have that kind of success with them we try i think we make great records but you know i, I wouldn't say it's on the level of guided by voices who everybody knew about who were critical followings who, you know who could therefore because of the amount of publicity about them could sustain touring for a while you know, and, and as Flaming Lips did as well. They had a lot of time for a lot of years before they really blew up. You know, it, and we didn't really do that with them. Right? No, it's not compared to mine. It's just compared to trying to make a life for them. I don't want to give you the impression that I feel like the whole endeavor, all those endeavors were failures. I, I put a pretty high bar on myself for what I wanted to do with those things. You know, and the fact is that selling records for anybody, including the majors, is a failure 99% of the time. You know, they just, there are, there are enough that we're, we know they were famous, but most bands would have never heard us. But I just really wanted to do well because these people are friends of mine too. And, you know, so when I judge it that way, like I said, I think we did a lot of things really well, but that made them very happy during that period. Their, their experience on the label was really good. I don't think any of them have bad things to say about it. It's just that in the end, we didn't succeed at selling. And that's a part of it, you know, it is. Don't get me wrong. I don't have some bitter memories of those things. I loved those record companies. And I don't feel like they failed in any way. I just feel like we failed them a little bit, you know, and we tried our best. But I'm not ashamed of that. We, you know, we did some great stuff, made some great music that's going to last forever. And I'm still really close to all those guys, you know, so I'm very proud of it, too. I don't want to give you the bad impression. I just I have a whole pretty high bar of responsibility for myself on those labels. And I, I just wish it had done better. That's all. Underwater Sunshine is both the name of the podcast and the festival, and both of those promote new music you like. So would you look at that as your new thing in, in lieu of having a record label? Yeah, it's the same kind of stuff in a lot of ways. You know, I did it for seven years with the Outlaw Roadshow, too. My partner, Ryan Spaulding, and I, you know, we did those together for years, and I loved that. In, in, every, in, any, in every way, to me, 
the festivals, whether it was Outlaw Roadshow back then or Underwater Sunshine now, are a total success. There's nothing we do that's not like a positive for the bands. And I love that about it because it's the same kind of effort, you know, it's the same amount of work, same, same thing I used to love doing with the records before, only now it always feels like a good thing, you know, because I'm not responsible for that other part. It's just promoting the bands and I love it. Absolutely love it. What is it that draws you to is it's at Bowery Electric, correct? The festival. Mm-hmm. And I knew that you did Outlaw Roadshow at Bowery Electric before. What is it that draws you to that specific venue? Oh, well, the people running it, Diane and, and our Jesse Mallon, they're, they're just great. And I've always, I love the place. I love working there. You know, I've always thought that we should eventually expand to bigger places too. And that was part of like what I was disappointed in with the Outlaw was that we never really got ourselves organized to the extent where we like were steadily packing it and could expand because it's a small venue. It's a great venue. The sound is fantastic, but it's small, you know, and I would like to eventually move out of there to someplace bigger, but you know, they've been so good to us for so long. They're just great people there and they love music and they run a really cool, great club. It has multiple rooms, which we like to have more than one stage. You know, we've looked at some other places too. And I think in the next year or so we'll probably expand because, you know, this has been running pretty efficiently and we're pretty happy with it, but I, I would like to expand, but the Bowery electric man, they just, they run a great club and they have great sound, even in a small room. It's true of a lot of places in New York, though. It's nice about the clubs here. Like, I, I remember coming up when a lot of small clubs around the country sounded terrible. New York has a lot of clubs that sound great. You know, like little rooms, but they've got their, they've done the work. They figured out how to make that room sound good. And they bring bands on and off stage with like a 15-minute changeover, and it still sounds good every time, which is incredible to me. And that was never the way when I was coming up. Most places sounded terrible. And are you a full-time New Yorker these days? Oh, yes. For uh, 15, 16, 17 years. I moved here in 2003. Yeah, I've been, I've been a New Yorker for a long time. And what is it that makes you loyal to New York rather than Los Angeles? Because I know that you did write some of your greatest work in Los Angeles. Um, you know, L.A. was great at one point for me, really, especially coming. I grew up in a, in a really cool, struggling artist community in the Bay Area, in Berkeley and Oakland, San Francisco. But it was really hard when I was a working artist. I felt like there was a lot of resentment towards that. Whereas when I came to L.A., uh, and it's not that way anymore for me at home back in, in the Bay Area, but it was at first. And L.A. was really welcoming as far as being a real working artist town. Everyone there was working professionally. And that was like a goal. It wasn't about, there wasn't a lot of jealousy. It didn't seem like a lot of frustration. It was just, you know, everybody was there to work and we all did. And it was, I, I really loved the artist community there for a long time. But I think New York is a great city to be a grown-up in. In a way, anything you might want to be interested in, anything in the world, whether that's, you know, the ballet, the opera, a museum, a bookstore, whatever it is, they have it here. And they have some of the best in the world here. And you can really, as an adult, be a dilettante. You know, you can find anything you want to be interested in. And there's a world-class version of it here. And I find that, like fascinating you want to go see someone there's 50,000 art galleries and you know 10 of the best museums in the world you want to see the the opera because you love music and you've never seen opera well the Mets here as is the New York City Opera you know how about the ballet they've got three of the best companies in the world here it is incredible and there's 200 theaters or something in New York rock and roll there's big venues small venues tiny venues mid-sized venues everybody in the world comes to play here um, 
jazz, same thing. Food, it's just everything you might want to be interested in is here. And I really found that to be an amazing, generous thing to live around. Also, I really love the subway. The, the idea that someone built a train like 100 years ago underground that will take me anywhere I want to go 24 hours a day for a couple bucks. I don't even know how to express that of all the things in New York, that may be the best. I mean, it's incredible. A thing that carries us all everywhere. I'm in love with the subway and I have, I have been since I first moved here. I, I can't believe how convenient it is. You know, in a world where it can be hard to get around and where traffic, no matter where you go in the world, is a huge problem. It's not really a problem here because of that. And that's, that's crazy. That's a really interesting take on it, on everything. But if I'm listening to you closely, it sounds like everything in your life is pretty much revolved around the arts. Like you're not a sports guy or not a TV guy so much. It's more about music and museums. No, I should, I'm just saying those things. I mean, the TV is everywhere. So it doesn't matter where you live for TV. I, I, I love TV. I always have, I still do. And it's only gotten better in recent years. It's TV's incredible. I used to, I mean, I've, I'm a, a, obsessed with movies. I have a theater in my house. I have always been obsessed with that. But TV is incredible in recent years. And sports, I, I, don't get me wrong. Uh, I still have season tickets to Cal football and basketball. Uh, one of my best friends coaches there. Another of my good friends is the coach of the Warriors. I'm going there tomorrow for a couple games to see him. Uh, I know guys on that team. Uh, I have a lot of friends who play professional sports. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm obsessed with sports. I always have been. I, I grew up uh, an A's fan and a, a Raiders fan, and to this day I still am an Warriors fan. Uh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with sports. And we also have Madison Square Garden here which is, you know, pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do love sports. I just wasn't thinking of it right then. I'm, I'm rather uh, obnoxiously obsessed with sports, if we're being honest about this. So sports, yeah. arts, New York City, it sounds like you like everything, and whatever you like, you like it a lot. Well, I'm not a huge fan of the teams here. I, I love the Rangers, and I love the Nets. Um, I, I love the Garden, and I appreciate how great the Knicks people are to me, but it's been really frustrating and difficult to be a Knicks fan recently. But I would love to be because the Garden's a great place. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a Giants or a Jets fan. I, I mean, I respect them because they're my hometown teams or the Yankees and Mets, really. I'm A's and Raiders on, on football. But I do love the Rangers. Uh, I don't know. I, I like, I just think New York's a great city. It's got everything. I'm kind of amazed at that. I, I, I miss some of the Bay Area stuff because I grew up living there. And I, I, I love those teams very, very much. But, you know, I, I, I can watch them on TV. You know, whereas the stuff in New York that is here, a lot of it you can't get anywhere else. Not at this level and with this and much of it. So I do appreciate that. But, uh, you know, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm just already a completely obnoxious, annoying sports guy. A question out of nowhere, because part of this is going up on the Jewish Journal, is uh, can you tell me something about your bar mitzvah? Any memories about it? Oh, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I remember afterwards at the party I went home and changed my mother told me to get the fuck back upstairs and change into my back into my suit it really annoyed the shit out of me um, I don't remember it very well uh, I remember I wrote a speech which means the rabbi wrote a speech uh, and I don't think it was very good I don't know I, I, I could always sing pretty well so I'm sure that I chanted the Aliyah and the Torah quite well um, I remember other people's bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs more than my own because uh, I got a I had a band soon after that and played a lot of friends' apartments. So I, I have a lot of memories of that. I don't really remember my own very well, though. It was such a long time ago. 
I remember studying yeshiva in Jerusalem a bit uh, a few years later, like when I was 18, 17, when I was over there. As I got really interested in that for a little while. My bar mitzvah, I don't really remember a whole lot about it. I mean, it was pretty easy. My girlfriend reminded me that I performed my bar mitzvah speech for them a few months ago, but it wasn't my bar mitzvah speech, it was my confirmation speech. And they refused to understand that the Jews could get confirmed, but it's not the same as Christian confirmation. But yeah, we did it at 16 or 15 in, in the Bay Area. Uh, I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, listen to music and go see it. There's more good music now than there ever was before. And it's just a matter of finding it. But there's more of it out there than there ever was. Music is in better shape that way than it's ever been before. Um, but it does need support from people. It's, uh, it's easy to like be lazy about it because we had everything delivered to our, our doorstep or our, our computers or our phones. But, but bands need real people to come see them in real places. They need us to leave the house. It's important. Last but not least is my short chat with Kelly Cuoco, the lead actress on the CBS hit The Big Bang Theory. Kelly is also the host of the new online series, The Great Travel Hack, which was produced with Shell. Life after The Big Bang Theory seems like it'll be pretty busy for Kelly. So how did the opportunity to work on The Great Travel Hack come about to you? I was so happy to work with them. They are really trying to make a difference in have, finding a new, cleaner way to travel. Um, this is a web series on YouTube. It is a competition show, which I love. We take two teams on this really cool road trip from L.A. to New York, and basically the winners are whoever uses least amount of CO2 emissions. And I host the show throughout, and we, we monitor all the situations and the places that they go. And the contestants were awesome. They tried really hard. They used all these different clean, um, um, different ways to travel, like hydrogen vehicles, electric vehicles. And you know, this is a hot topic right now, obviously, and it's, it's affecting our entire world, and we're not going to change the world overnight. But I think this is a really fun little show. It's five episodes. You get the point across. And I really enjoyed being part of it, and I learned a lot myself. So have you always been interested in travel? I love travel. Yes, I love travel. And so seeing this kind of different way and looking at it from a different point of view, how you really can get from A to B in a cleaner, um, environmentally friendly way, is, is really is really interesting. I don't think we look at things like that anymore. We're, we're fading away from that. We need to move forward. So how long did you spend working on The Great Travel Hack? So they were, t I believe it was a few weeks for the, for, the, for the travelers, and we monitored it from a different stage, but they, were, they went full out for those weeks and did not stop. So we started at the beginning, and then I had all the, um, I was on their iPads a lot and was sending them voice or uh, text messages and videos and leading them to the next this, and you have to get on this and go there. And, and then they ended up at the end, and we had a winner, and it was a really, really, f I love competition shows. I'm very competitive. And um, this was a, it was very cute. It added all those elements into, into one little show. So beyond the great travel hack, do you know what your next few projects look like? For example, are there plans to take it easy after the Big Bang Theory wraps? So I launched my production company a year ago called Yes Norman Productions. And I, the minute that I launched it, I optioned a book called The Flight Attendant that you can actually buy right now. I optioned it, it's all mine, and I'm starring and producing in it, which we'll be shooting by the end of the year, or turning it into a mini-series, and I'm really, really excited. It's the first time that I'm completely, my. it's my entire, everything is being put into this. So if it sucks, I'm going to quit acting, and if it's great, I'm gonna brag about it to the end of time. So is there a career accomplishment that you're most proud of? 
You know, Big Bang as a whole, it's changed my life and my career. It gave me a star on the, the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I mean, there, there are things that it's done for me that it's been life-changing. And no matter what I do from here on out, it will always trace back to Big Bang. And Chuck Lorre, who's one of my favorite people in the world, who gave me this opportunity 12 years ago, it, I'll never be able to repay him. It's, it's why I'm sitting here today. So is there something that you wish more people knew about Kelly Cuoco? Well, um... I am, I am not this blonde. I, <laughs> it took me 17 hours to get ready this morning. This doesn't just happen overnight. Oh, and I'm drunk. I mean, I had to start early. So it was the only way that they could get me to sit in this chair. Finally, Kaylee, any last words for the kids? To kids nowadays, oh my God, don't pollute our earth. <laughs> Watch this show. While you're waiting in line at Magic Mountain, you can turn on this youtube.com slash shell and watch these quick little vignettes. They're entertaining, they're fun, and you might actually learn something. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.